Hey church, welcome to an online worship service. Before we get started here, I just wanted to give you a quick update. We've been getting a lot of questions. As you guys know, our Christmas cafe is a big time tradition that we've had around here for years and years and years and years. And the questions are coming in. What are we doing about cafe this year? I just want to let you know a little bit of our thinking behind what we're doing. Uh, typically, pre-COVID, Agora Bible Fellowship, we were averaging about 500 people a weekend, give or take. And then Christmas cafe weekend, we had a thousand people show up on this campus for the past two, three years. It has become a major outreach, um, you know, invite your friends, uh, expose them to the gospel type event. And as we thought about it and prayed about it, both me and Erica and the elder board and Pastor Scott just feel like, man, in, in this year, it's just not likely we're going to see 500 people come on the campus, nor is that necessarily within the boundaries of, of our, you know, COVID restrictions. So we made the hard decision and, and just said it's not going to happen this year in our traditional form, which nobody's going to love, but hey, welcome to 2020. Um, instead, we're creating an, an online video. It's going to be a little storytelling. It's going to have a music component to it. It's going to have some teaching. It's going to be something you can share with friends, uh, something you can enjoy with your family. We're, we're really excited about where that's going. And then also we're putting a lot of effort into Christmas Eve services, which will be held outside, uh, but really be a special time. We're kind of amping up uh, Christmas Eve. So that's the Christmas game plan. Sorry if that's disappointing for many of you. It was disappointing for all of us, but man, just a ton of effort and work and resource goes into Christmas Cafe, and we just didn't feel like it was the right management of our time this year. So let's all pray for COVID to pass us by so that 2021, we can get back to doing what we love to do at Christmas time. In the meantime, it's time to worship the Lord. So get up to your feet, unless you're watching this driving a moving vehicle, and then definitely stand up, but keep your seatbelt on. So safety first, okay? Let's praise the Lord. Here we go.
tell me this who can stop the Lord Almighty who can stop the Lord Almighty who can stop the Lord Almighty who can stop the Lord
no other name but the name that is Jesus. He who was and still is and will be through it all. So come what may in the space between all the things unseen and his reckoning. I know I will never be Well, we're going to break our form here for uh, just a quick second. We're actually going to sing one more song together. But before we do, I just want to acknowledge something that you know, some of you on social media might know. Um, but our friend Mike Brown and his wife Courtney and their two kids have bought a house in Prescott, Arizona and are in the process of moving. And I just wanted to acknowledge uh, Mike and Ramon, actually, because the, the four of us, sorry to exclude you, Zion, but... The four of us have been playing worship together for about 10 years, uh, close to it. We have, I've played worship more with these two guys and this beautiful lady than, than any other specific team. Uh, and I remember back in the old days, you know, when, when, before Scott got here, it was kind of the dark days, if you remember those days. And sometimes we couldn't even find, you know, we didn't have people that wanted to play. And it was just the four of us. And so I just want to bless you and your beautiful wife and tell you how much you meant to us as a church. It's not a forever goodbye. Mike's work will bring him back into town regularly, and we hope to see him, but not as often. So if you see Mike and Courtney uh, in the weeks to come, would you just greet them and uh, thank them? This is a song that we've played together many, many times. And as we rehearsed it, I got really moved and asked if we could make it a part of this recording. So if you'll join with us in worship and gratitude for what God has done in his presence, we're going to sing Sinking Deep together.
Everybody, welcome to church. In case you were wondering, this Sunday marks 40 days, 4-0, until Christmas. Get excited. I am Stephanie is, that's for sure. Hey, a couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, if there's anything we can be praying for you for this week, we would love to do that. Go ahead and text any prayer requests over to 97,000. This Sunday, we are having our blood drive here at the church from nine to three. If you're interested in donating some blood, come on over. We will take all the blood that you'll give us. That would be great. Then next Sunday, uh, November 22nd, a really great day. It's Lindsay and my sixth anniversary, and we just wanted to tell you about that. Uh, but also on that day, we're having our newcomers lunch. So if you are newer to the church and uh, you're going to be around ABF's campus on that day, we would love for you to come over after second service and uh, hang out for some lunch, get to meet the staff, and it's a really good time. So come check that out. Again, thank you so much for your continued generosity. We love you guys. You can give online. You can mail in a check however you want. Uh, we love you guys a ton. We'll see you soon. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get over to Pastor Scott. Dear Lord, um, God, we just thank you for a chance uh, to be together online. And uh, Lord, I just pray right now that you'd speak through Pastor Scott. Thank you for your word. Thank you that every week uh, it is good. It is life-giving. Um, Lord, we pray that you'd speak. Lord, I pray for our students that are still doing school online. I just pray for their hearts and their minds uh, that they would just continue to plow through and uh, get the things done that they need to, Lord. Um, we love you. We trust you in the season. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, greetings, church, and uh, thank you, Josh, for praying for us, and uh, excited to be in God's Word, continuing to gather each week online, and just thank you for your faithfulness in that, hopefully uh, being blessed by our time working through the book of John. And uh, last week, as you remember, we uh, ended with a, an amazing story of God's provision, just uh, just blessing people beyond belief, over 10,000 plus people uh, enjoying all-they-can-eat buffet uh, uh, by God himself. And so just thinking about that, I was, I was thinking about just that whole idea of free. We're kind of in a, a, a culture and a world where we value and appreciate when something actually comes free. There's a certain amount of endorphins that actually uh, flow when you find out something is going to be free. I don't know if you guys are like that. Uh, we had a couple of weeks ago, we had some house guests from Chicago that were staying with us. And uh, just as a, a, as a form of gratitude, they left a, a gift card to that restaurant in Westlake called Lemonade. I don't know if you guys have eaten there before. Uh, very good food. And so Adrian and I were excited to use this gift card. So we decided one day this week, we'd go over there. We had the gift card ready, picked out our, our meal. We we're gonna enjoy uh, lunch together. We get up to the counter and they tell us that they're, a machine for reading the gift card is not working. And so we're like, oh, so what do we do? And they're like, oh, so this, this lunch is on us. I'm like, so it was like double free. So not only did we get the, the, the free gift card, we also ended up getting a free lunch to use the free gift card later. It was like a free bonanza. Like it was amazing. The endorphins are flowing like crazy. It gave me a little bit of sense as to what it must have been like the day after the provision 
of food that we saw last week. Over 10,000 plus enjoying all they can eat of the food that the Lord had provided. I'm guessing whatever uh, bread he cooked or whatever fish he created, it would have been an epic meal. So it sends them in the beginning of our text here. Uh, we're in chapter six, verse 22. The first couple of verses are really just the, the people that had been fed trying to figure out where in the world Jesus had gone. Really, we don't know what it was, if it was amplified by their poverty, but most likely they're thinking to themselves, we found the source of free, ongoing free food. So they were determined to find Jesus. So they end up chasing him all the way to the uh, city of Capernaum, which is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They finally find him on the shoreline. And that's where we'll pick up in verse 25. And when they come to him, they ask him this question, Rabbi, when did you come here? In other words, how in the world did you get here? And the interesting thing here, it's an interesting passage, rather than answering their question, Jesus confronts their motives and begins a famous conversation known as the bread of life discourse. This was a major turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Basically, his popularity, that had been skyrocketing. This is the turning point where it starts to diminish. Basically, the polls are down, the popularity level is uh, descending, and really, this is a, 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 a turning point, like I said, where one conversation led to losing the majority of his followers. Pretty intense conversation, makes you wonder what in the world did he say that actually emptied the room? Well, we have a, a bunch of verses to cover in our time uh, today, and I'm not going to uh, do a traditional sermon with four points. It doesn't really lend to that. Anyway, we're going to have more of like a, a conversation where we're listening, actually more like we're listening into a conversation and making observations on what we see. So we're going to do little chunks at a time and uh, work through the entire uh, passage. Hopefully it's an encouragement. I, I was thinking about the idea of listening into a conversation. I was talking to Adrian recently, and she was telling me about how it worked in the small town that she grew up in. She grew up on a farm, and they had what they'd call party lines. Do you remember the, this conversation, Adrian? Party lines was this. is This was a rural, rural farming community, and what they had is a single line that everybody in the community would share. And so if you picked up the phone, if somebody was already on the line, you could just sit there and listen in on the conversation. And so the ideal scenario for uh, somebody that likes to kind of peek in on other people's world and their business. And so anyway, we're joining the party line. We're listening into a conversation. Let me pray before we do that. Lord Jesus, we invite you to speak to us through this text. And as usual, we come with expectation that by opening your word, it allows for you to speak directly to our hearts. The parts of us that don't typically hear anything that grow, if we're not careful, can grow numb. We ask that you'd be alive and working in our time, uh, that the, this text would come to life. We invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So verse 26, as we're about to listen in on how to empty a room, says, Jesus answered them. Remember their question, where did you come from? He answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Pause there. Notice he confronts them. He says, basically, you're not seeking me because my actions confirm my deity, but because you'd like some more free food. Or in other words, you don't want me. You want what I can provide. Basically, here's the reality. Nobody really likes when their motives, if they're uh, improper motives, are brought to the surface, if they're highlighted. Nobody likes to be confronted. And so how do you clear a room? We're seeing right here how you do it is he pushes back and he's pushing, say, you're not here because you're wanting more of me. You're here because you want more of what I can provide. Instead of using that opportunity to highlight the miraculous what had happened in the, the middle of the night, he doesn't say, man, you should have seen what I did last night. I, I, did, I sent this boat into hyperdrive to the shore. None of that talk. Instead, he tries to move the conversation from superficial surface temporal things to spiritual things, to eternal things. And here's the reality of how you empty a room so often is you try to move people to think about the bigger issues of life. What happens after this life? What happens next? How am I rescued from my sin? Is there a God that I answer to? Here's the reality. Most people successfully go through the majority of their life, some people even their entire life, without ever even having conversation about spiritual things. They somehow successfully avoid it by just keeping things kind of surface and, and temporal and, and keeping things light. I notice this every year at our uh, Christmas cafe. Everybody's enjoying a, a great evening, some nice songs, lots of memories, and enjoying some treats. And then up comes the bald pastor with the Christmas message. All of a sudden, the festive tone all of a sudden gets intense really quickly. People start squirming in their seats. Oh man, what's he gonna say about our, our need for a savior and why Jesus actually came to earth? You sense that because people prefer not to have to think about some of those tough things. Basically here, Jesus points to food that endures to, to eternal life and that he offers you see, the people didn't realize that their greatest need wasn't physical food, but it was spiritual food. It mentions the fact that he's confirmed, he's been sealed by God the Father, confirming his identity. We talked about some of the signs confirming his identity a couple of weeks ago. John the Baptist, miracles, God the Father, scripture, all amplifying and pointing to who he was and what he had come to do. Verse 28, and then they said to him, what? must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Imagine they're holding their breath. What is it? That you believe in him who he has sent. So here's the idea. He's confronting their confusion. So he's pushed them to think about some serious things. He gets them there. And their first question is, well, what am I supposed to do? What are, uh, they're under the impression still, and this is the impression that living under the law takes you to, under the impression that you can do something to fix yourself, that you can solve your predicament. So they're wanting to hear, what is the do? What are the things that in human effort we can do to appease God, to, to please him? I love Jesus's response because he says, this is the work of 
of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And other, it's nothing. The only do that's part of the life of a, of a rescued person is belief. That's the only thing that rescues. So he points them to that, starts by pointing them to the fact that they can't fix themselves. Rescues only found by placing your hope in Jesus Christ. So the conversation continues, verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Kind of interesting to me that right after, literally the day after, we were just told that he's healing everybody in the region, that he just provided food for 10,000 plus people. They're asking for what? A sign. Asking for a sign. How crazy, crazy is that? It really confirms what Jesus had already said. You're not seeking me, not because you saw a sign. In other words, you missed the signs that were right in front of you confirming his identity. They're asking for something to prove. It's so funny because they point to some of the things that their ancestors had experienced. And Jesus is like, are you kidding? Are you gonna compare me to Moses? It's interesting also that they chose to celebrate the good old days and miss the miraculous that they're currently experiencing and seeing in their life. We have that same tendency ourselves to think back to glorifying past events and celebrating particular people rather than looking at what's directly in front of us. We end up missing our Chipotle moments and all the things that God provides on a day-to-day basis. I think it's interesting. We love to celebrate men and we confuse what's attainable, independent of God as if there's anything independent. So they point to the food, the manna that Moses had provided. Think about that for a second. God's like, Moses provided? Moses was a knucklehead. Moses blew it on so many accounts, you can't even keep track of it. Look at Jesus' response. Very kind. He says, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. In other words, let's be clear on that. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Basically what Jesus does there is he corrects them. He's like, it's not Moses who gives you the bread. It's God who gives it. And he again, do you notice this? He subtly moves the conversation from talking about physical bread to talking again. He's pushing him, pushing him, pushing him to talk about things that are spiritual. He says, man, I'm giving you, I'm offering you eternal provision. The bread that God is, he who comes down from heaven. That's the bread of God that he offers, is me. In other words, he keeps pointing to me. And they're a little confused at this point. What do they say? Well, give us this this bread. In fact, we're hungry right now. We wouldn't mind another meal. Verse 35, Jesus couldn't make it more clear. So Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him 
should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus patiently clarifies. What does he say there in verse 35? He says, I'm the bread of life. How much more clearly can I explain this to you? I'm not talking, I'm not talking about literal bread anymore. You've got to catch this. I'm the living bread. I'm the one that satisfies. It's interesting, his word choice here, and I've tried to point it out through the entire book. Basically, seven times in the book of John, he uses the description of himself as the I am. This is the same title that he uses in the Old Testament at the burning bush when God identifies himself to Moses. It's a clear title of deity. When he's saying, who should I say sent me? I am sent me. It's a defining description of God himself. So here, when he says, I am the bread of life, it's the same exact words used. He goes on, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Makes it as crystal clear as possible. Then he explains that though they have seen him, they don't believe. Think if you had seen him so often, people are like, you know what? If I was there and I would have seen all this stuff, I would have for sure embraced him. Like it would have been so easy. But all of these people right in the middle of experiencing all of this stuff still somehow missed it. See, we underestimate the extent of spiritual blindness that we can have. Jesus explains though, again, all that the father gives me will come to me. That's an interesting statement that he makes there in the middle of this explanation. So he says, some people aren't going to believe, but he says, all that the father gives me will come to me. In other words, if you were chosen, if you are predestined, if you're chosen by God, you will believe. It's a theme that runs throughout scripture, this idea of predestination, that God chose us before we chose him. Some people are like, well, how do we know if we're chosen? Belief or unbelief. If you're not believing, then you'll know that you're not, that you haven't been chosen by God. It's kind of hard for our minds to grasp a, a God that's not bound by time and space and how to piece it all together. But regardless, it's a theme throughout scripture. And here he's saying, if you haven't chosen me, it's a sign that you haven't been chosen. Basically trying to bring clarity to why they keep on resisting this. He ends the section with explaining simply, everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. I'm trying to think a uh, first time reading through this, I remember thinking, man, this all seems kind of cloudy, kind of confusing language, language about, about bread. What's he actually going with there? I thought, was this just another dialogue or conversation that people left just shaking their heads, not making any sense out of it? I think after going through it for a, a stretch this week, a good amount of time, it's just the opposite. I think they knew exactly what he was saying. He was clearly explaining that he, that belief in him was their one source of rescue, their one direction towards eternal life. It wasn't a matter of them not understanding. They may have just not liked the message. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them. It's kind of fun. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me that anyone who has seen the father except he who is from God, he has seen the father. Basically here he calls them out. He calls them out on their grumbling. We're told that they grumbled about the idea. Basically in order to justify their unbelief, they bring up the fact that they know his parents, so how can he be divine? In other words, wait a second, we, we know this guy. We know where he grew, grew up. We know the, the house that he lived in. We know Mary and Joseph. How can he now be claiming to be someone coming from heaven? But the reality is, if they actually knew scripture, scripture pointed to the fact that the Messiah would come through a woman. Isaiah talks about it multiple times. So if they knew their Bible, but here, but much like today, it's like, like today, anything that for anybody that's grown up in the church, when something becomes too familiar, kind of get numb to it. All of a sudden you don't notice it as not a, as big of a deal anymore. You get, becomes familiar. And sometimes that's the part that hurts me. And the, some of the kids that grow up in the church and they've been around it so long, they grow up and all of a sudden they have freedom and they choose to wander off because somewhere along the line, they lost that, that, that passion, that fervor, the excitement about all that Jesus is and all that Jesus offers. We all need to fight for fam against familiarity. He says that Jesus calls them out. He says, do not grumble. They weren't very subtle in this. Basically, the idea of grumble there in the, that language, the idea was somebody kind of whispering or trying to say something where it's not heard. And it's kind of, kind of picture this idea. I don't know if you know of anybody in your life that's not very good at whispering. Uh, I think that a lot of times that's attached to age. The older you get, the less you seem to be good at whispering. I, uh, we joke about this as a, as a family. My grandfather, who we were very close with, when he passed away, he asked my sister Kathleen, uh, to make sure that she had a chance at his funeral to share the gospel message. And so at, at his uh, funeral, she was up there and was first sharing some memories and just a uh, really tear-filled uh, sharing. And in, in that sharing, all of a sudden, we, we hear in the back of the room, we hear some elderly lady going, is she done yet? When's she gonna ever be done? When's she gonna finish? And I don't know if she thought she was whispering, but clearly everybody in the room heard. And it kind of spoiled a moment. I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna lie to you, but here's, here's the picture here. I picture Jesus in the middle of explaining to them with patience and kindness and compassion. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one form of rescue. And all of a sudden they're grumbling and, and murmuring about, yeah, but he can't be from heaven. I know Mary, I know Joseph, and I, I know his brothers. I, I, I know these things about him. Instead though, he just patiently deals with that. He confronts them about the, the mumbling, says, don't, don't grumble. This idea here, rather than argue though, he just revisits the truth that only those who believe are believing because the Father has drawn them. He draws us in a variety of ways. We talked about that a couple of uh, weeks ago through creation, through a clear verbal witness, through conviction of the Holy Spirit, preaching, whether it's getting into God's word yourself, evidence from creation, the law. I mean, there's so many different ways that God draws us, but he's explaining to them, you're not going to believe unless the God, the Father has brought you towards that belief. Again, 
the idea of predestination, a theme running throughout. Verse 47, he continues, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Is that hard to understand? It's pretty straightforward. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. In other words, the bread they or you're celebrating was something that was fleeting, something that was passing. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Gets pretty intense here. Basically, Jesus, even amidst their grumbling, he doesn't let off the gas. Keeps pushing, keeps pushing. He's like, I'm gonna move them to consider spiritual things, even if they don't want to, even if they wanna digress and, and go into uh, side uh, conversations and, and be diverted from this. I'm gonna keep on pressing. He couldn't be more crystal clear. I am the living bread. The bread I'll give is for, the li for life. Uh, the bread I will give for the life of the world is what? My flesh. What's he talking about there? Basically, here it's a prophetic moment referring to his coming death and resurrection, knowing that his literally body, literal body is going to be broken on a cross for them. He's painting a picture. He's laying a foundation, likely something that in a year later would make a lot of sense for them. Some of this is laying a foundation for an understanding that they won't have at that moment, but I imagine where dots will later be connected. Verse 52, let's see how they responded. So they went, they went from uh, grumbling. Now it says they disputed. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me, I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Pause there. That's a pretty intense section. Basically, the start by the, the ending there. First, he's moved the conversation. So most likely from down by the seashore, uh, which isn't too far uh, from the, the synagogue there in Capernaum. One of the highlights of Adrian's trip there a couple years ago was sitting in the synagogue in Capernaum and thinking about him having this conversation right there with these people. And in that, you wonder by my title, how do you clear a room? How do you, how do you make a, a room of followers all of a sudden empty? You, the, the, the solution to that I'd suggest is right here in this section. You basically suggest cannibalism. You suggest the idea of, of eat some flesh and drink some blood and all of a sudden people are like, whoa, I don't know about all of this. But what's fascinating to me is he's been talking and using figurative language all throughout his ministry. In fact, anytime he's talking, he's almost always using some kind of a tangible example. I don't know why they're unable 
to make that connect when he says, eat of this flesh and drink of this blood. Basically, eating is obviously not literal, but means to, that they have believed the message and made it their own. They've, they've sunk their teeth into it. They've embraced it. They've, they've taken it as truth. But here's one of the statements that's attached to that. He says, eat of my flesh and drink of his blood. And he says, you have no life in you. In other words, you can't rescue you. Your only hope for rescue is partaking in me. And he's already explained that, that, that it's simply through belief. So is this something that, that pushes people a little? Absolutely. Is it crystal clear? I would say absolutely. Now we have the benefit of looking back at it and having the gospel to attach. And some people are like, man, was that, was that just kind of a, a, a botched analogy? I've had plenty of those over the years, trust me. Like, was this an illustration that, that just didn't go well, that Jesus didn't think through? He was trying out new material and you're like, oh, man, that was, a, that was a major flop. Absolutely not. I believe that there is intention in this. He's not interested in people stuck in limbo. He's surrounded by people that are kind of on the fence, kind of like what he has to offer, but not willing to embrace really what he came to deal with. I think a lot of this, that was something that was, as I mentioned, he's laying a foundation for later. Most of these people would be alive through his death. They'd be there for his resurrection. Some may have even seen him ascend back to heaven. A lot of these people would connect the dots. So I would suggest he was weeding out the crowds for a future harvest. I'll say that again. He was weeding out the crowds for a future harvest. When you read the, the account in the book of Acts of how many people, said, when it says thousands were being saved and multitudes of people believing, who, what, what people groups do we think we're talking about there? It's the same region, the same groups of people. And so a lot of this was, one, pushing people away because he, had, he was there on a mission. He couldn't have a massive fan group. He, so he, he's pushing people just the right amount, pushing people, keeping them at arm's distance because there had to be something that broke his popularity. There had to be something that caused people to turn from wanting to make him king one day. Remember, we were told that the, the day before they're wanting to force him to become king to all of a sudden the crowds disappearing. I would suggest this was very intentional. He had to push hard enough for people to turn on him. Verse 60, we see that's exactly what happened. When many of his disciples heard it, they say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, you're going to see me go back up. All these things I'm saying about coming down from heaven are going to be affirmed. It is the spirit who gives life and the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, I'm not talking about the physical. I'm talking about the spiritual. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. Again, predestination. After this, many of his, of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
powerful statement. After this, the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Basically, in this passage, we see a progression from grumbling to disputing to now completely rejecting Jesus and the message that he brought. Same group that was shouting, let's make him king. Now the next day, see that I, what I love though, is that his message doesn't alter. In this, when he's seeing, you can, you can sense with a crowd. When you have a, a crowd, when you're a communicator, you can sense when a, you're starting to lose them. And he's saying, this would be a time to, oh man, I need to, I need to self-adjust. I need to correct. I need to uh, morph my message to something that's more palatable. But that's not at all what Jesus does. I was talking to Chad earlier today about this. And he was like, man, that's one of the, to me, one of the testimonies of why this is authentic, why Jesus isn't a made up fictional character. Because if you're, if you're putting Captain America in this scene or whatever hero, you're not making a hero that clears and empties rooms because of his analogy. That's not, what, that's not the storyline that you draw up, but that's the reality of what Jesus does here. He pushes and pushes until they can't take it anymore, until they finally break. They cease to follow and I would suggest they don't cease to follow because his message is unclear. They cease to follow because his message is crystal clear and they don't like what they hear. It's crystal clear and they've decided that I can't absorb that. I'm not willing to place my trust in this Jewish carpenter. I'm not willing to leave everything else and place my hope in him. Jesus will end with this last section, verse 67 gives the opportunity for the 12 to bail. He says, so, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is the devil. <laughs> he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Basically, Jesus gave the 12 a chance to, to jump ship. And Peter, I love it. Peter's always the bold one. Peter speaks up for the entire group. He, do, he doesn't give a chance for them to bail. He's like, no, we know that you're the only one that speaks words of eternal life. And he, he points to where they're at, or at least where he's at. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. P clearly, Peter recognizes that he's the Messiah. He had heard and seen too much. That's where we're intended to get to the place. Jesus doesn't like when people are left in limbo. He wants them to encounter him to such a degree that you're like, I can't really stay on the fence anymore. For Peter, there's, there's no turning back. He's in, he's seen and experienced too much. He clearly recognizes him as the Messiah. He does do a little correction. You may have caught that at the end for Peter. He's like, not all of you are in, not all of you are supporting you. In fact, one of you are the devil. And uh, I don't know uh, the, the, where, where the, I mean, how that would make Judas feel, but I'm imagining not real great. Either way, this is the, the, the passage that we're in. It really reminds us in our life that really comes down just like this crowd, really to a choice, really a decision. What are we gonna do with Jesus's invite? What does he offer? He says, listen, if you partake, if you believe in me, you can have rescue. You can have eternal life. 
But here's the thing that that offer does is it actually pushes and reveals some of the wrong reasons that people are drawn to Jesus. Just want to just mention a couple of those just as we wrap up. Some of the, the things that in response to today, a lot of us still come to Jesus wanting to have our physical needs met. We attach and we associate his provision. If God does this, then we're clearly in good relationship. We sometimes mock the people in these stories and we think to ourselves, man, why were they so caught up with his provision, but yet we slip down that road so easily ourselves. As long as God is doing this, this, and this for me, then I'm satisfied. It's one of the wrong motives that brings us to Jesus. Another one is this idea, you see it there in the text, seeking salvation where they are the Savior. Remember their words? What work should we do? What, what, what is it that I can do to rescue? Sometimes we think of that as, oh, that's so naive. But then if we're honest with ourselves, how quickly we slip back into a works-based mentality as well. Thinking of what we need to please God, or if I do this, this, and this, if I have this checklist, if I do this, that's one of the mentalities that it's so easy to embrace present day as well. Another form is, pushing against the idea of God, of Jesus actually being God in the flesh. I've talked about that over a number of weeks now that so many of the world religions resist that idea, will not acknowledge that Jesus is God in an earth suit, resist that idea as best as possible because what that demands on us is change, demands submission, it demands lordship. And that's the part that we resist because we like the idea of being our own self-God, pushing against the idea of God in the flesh, but fully ready to celebrate people and other men. I uh, was reading this article this last week. It was titled, We Don't Need Another Cool Pastor. It's written in response to public moral failure and some of what's been going on in our media that's actually quite heartbreaking. But for me, it's always the reminder, man, there's one hero in this story, and that is it. The last thing that I'd say that wrong reasons why people are drawn to Jesus, and we'll conclude with this one, is that many of us want a bloodless rescue. There's a reason why they got all squeamish when he started talking about eating of my, my blood or drinking of my blood and eating of my flesh. There's a reason that makes us squeamish because we don't like the idea that our sin demands that, that our, that our sin demanded a sacrifice, that this was needed, a rescue plan that in, involved the sacrifice of God Almighty on a cruel Roman cross. You see, all of a sudden when our sin is no longer a big deal and we can't accept this idea of substitution, all of a sudden our worship diminishes. So if you want to get stirred back up in your passion meter and all of a sudden you don't want things to grow old, you need to be aware of the stench of our own sin, that it demands sacrifice. All of these things as we're listening in, we get a clue of how Jesus cleared a room, but in the clearing the room, he pushes us to ask some really good questions. Will we embrace him? Not just a one-time event, but ongoing. Will we embrace him as the bread of life? The one thing that has hope of satisfaction. Let me pray. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for this section of scripture and uh, thank you for getting us through it. That was a big uh, dose to swallow, but an amazing conversation to listen into, to see where you are working, where you were pushing, and you're not content with us avoiding big issues. We're not content with us avoiding spiritual things. So many would love to just keep things superficial and surface, but you push because it's an act of love, because you know that it matters what we do with the offer of Jesus Christ. Pray now, just as we're going into our, our, our weeks ahead, that that message that he was so boldly pushing would be on the tip of our tongues, that we're looking and uh, praying for opportunities to speak and to present the life that can change eternities. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When you speak, confusion fades. Just a word. And suddenly I'm not afraid, cause you speak. And freedom reigns. There is hope in every single word you say.
church well the line in that I don't want to miss a word you speak quiet my heart I'm listening you think about that this even the the tough things we need to listen to even the nudges and the pushes towards the spiritual rather than the surface I pray that we live our uh, life like that the week ahead is marked with that God bless you any way we can serve you please let us know <laughs>